You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Thomas Bosch. He's a professor of cell and developmental biology at the University of Kiel in Germany. So, Thomas, thank you for coming. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, it looks uh, super interesting. We're talking about uh, cell senescence, immune system senescence, and uh, things like that. So, tell me a little bit about your your background and your your current work. Yeah. So, my the main interest for all my academic life is to understand. Uh, how is multicellular life um, organized in all its complexity? How did um, animals evolve, uh, developmental mechanisms? How is health maintained in simple life forms? How similar or dissimilar is that in more complex organisms, uh, including, including humans? Um, so these are the basic questions which we uh, started. And for doing, for asking these questions, we use a simple model animal, a freshwater polyp uh, for all my life, which uh, is a classical model system in evolutionary developmental biology. It's non-senescent, it's simple, it's transparent, it's uh, analytically um, uh, very accessible and so a beautiful system to understand um, right these questions. Um, and in addition, and that's important, um, we realized in the last 15 years that no animal, including this model animal, is alone. This animal, as all other organisms, is colonized by a specific microbiome. And um, so the question from the beginning became a little more complex. Um, not only how is multicellular life organized uh, in, in the beginning of animal evolution, how similar is that to more complex life forms, but also what role does the microbiome play in these um, in these organisms, that's one of the um, that's the basic question I'm I'm interested in. But there is a second access to the current research, and that is I'm in a, a biomedical institution, and I'm also at the faculty of um, medical life sciences. And um, we realize that in the last fifty years, humans suffer from diseases in quantity, which uh, was never seen before. And these are mostly chronic inflammatory diseases, 
um, inflammatory bowel diseases, but there's also adipositas, uh, neurodegeneration, um, behavior, behavior um, disorders, and many, many. And um, so the question is why in the last 50 years we see this increase in this type of diseases. And there is a very strange technology which helps to linger the symptoms of these diseases. None of these diseases can be prevented and there is no cure, but fecal microbial transplantation helps in some of the patients, in some of the diseases, not in all of them, and, uh, and uh, contributes then to, to lingering of, of the symptoms. So what uh, question, what do you call the, you know, the organism with its constituent microbiome? I've heard holobiont many times. Yes. A different term for it. Not really. There are two, there are two terms um, which are now widely used. One is the holobiont term, and we use also meta-organisms. Um, we distinguish a little bit, also you can think these are synonymous terms, but the meta-organism term um, focuses on the interactions of many different organisms within one given organism. And that's what we are interested in. We are interested in the functional, so how does how do the, the different members of this meta-organism interact, what's the function of these interactions. Holobiont um, you can also use, but that's a term which maybe is more descriptive. Um, so people use this or that, and that doesn't really, that doesn't really matter. Um, for the reasons I have outlined, interest in basic um, questions, how does multicellular life function? How is health maintained over developmental time? And what is the trouble with, in our modern times, you also may say in the Anthropocene, with these numbers of diseases so much increasing, led us to found a research center, a collaborative research center, which is funded by the German Science Foundation, which is called Origin and Function of Meta-Organisms. And uh, so our research um, in a team of, of um, researchers from very different uh, fields of medical sciences, mathematical modeling, um, evolutionary biologists, cell biologists. We all work on different organisms to understand these basic questions. So what are you trying to understand specifically? So the, first, there's a number of surprising findings which we uh, got in the last uh, in the last few years, and I may summarize what we what we found before I go to the challenges and then um, uh, tell you a little bit about what, uh, what we are right now um, just facing. The most surprising finding was here you talk to a person who knows an organism for 30 years, a simple organism, transparent, and you think this organism must be understood. Then came 15, 20 years ago, the modern sequencing machines, and so you bring this tissue uh, to your colleague next door and uh, put the, some of the tissue into the sequencer. And then the data next morning tell you there is contamination in that uh, sequencing. Okay, then you clean your tissue better and you bring it again to your neighbor and he, does, he runs the sequencing machine again and then he comes back and says, again, there is some bacterial microbial contamination in. And uh, so on, so on. And uh, so a, a long story, very short, is very simple, that there is no contamination, but every single tissue 
including the one which I thought I know very well, is colonized by an invisible entity, and that is the microbiota or the microbiome, which is the sum of the genomes of the of the microbes. So for that reason, we consider every single organism, including humans, is holobionts or, or meta-organisms. And um, the first surprising finding was that this microbiota in our organism, which we are working on, this freshwater polypidra, is super specific. means you have different species in the lab. They live in plastic dishes, thousands. These are lab creatures. You feed them with artificial food. You do the sequencing and you find that every single species has its own microbiome. Then you start to think this is impossible because they all get treated the same way. And then you ask your graduate student who discovered that, Sebastian Fraune, I don't believe that. Go out in the wild, find the species again and do the sequencing. And that's what Sebastian did. And uh, so we confirmed that even after culturing for 20 years in plastic dishes, you maintain your specific microbiome. That was extraordinary, and that triggered us to look more deep because if different species have their distinct microbiota, that means that the host, the animal, we have we do something to maintain that specific microbiota. So the question is, how do we do that? Then came another surprise. I'm interested for a long time in the evolution of the immune system and epithelial defense, and we try to understand the genes involved and so the effector molecules. But now we realize that the immune system is the crucial part which maintains the stable, beneficial microbes. You use your innate and your adaptive immune system to maintain the menagerie of beneficial microbes you have in your body, in your oral cavity, in your intestine, and anywhere. And so does every other organism. That, if you think a little bit about that, um, led me to rethink the evolutionary function of the immune system. If you ask somebody what's the function of the immune system, everybody will answer, well, to defend pathogens. But I think it's more than that. I think originally the immune system was invented to maintain, to establish and to maintain a healthy, beneficial microbiome. You use killer molecules like antimicrobial peptides to kill certain beneficial bacteria to maintain a stable composition of your microbes. And occasionally the same system also then attacks a pathogen, which is um, usually a very rare event. So that was surprising that the immune system is actually there to maintain a stable microbiome, this specific microbiome of a given meta-organism. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean the immune system is there to maintain the microbiome? What does that mean? It means that you have, we agree now that all organisms are holobionts or meta-organisms. So that means the organism, the host, which you see, must somehow, is colonized by microbes, but that must somehow be stabilized and they live together and they live together always in this type of composition. So the question is, how is that regulated? And it turns out that the host uses an armada of different immune molecules, including antimicrobial peptides and others, 
um, to maintain that precise and specific microbiome. That's why the immune system is there to maintain and to is to help to establish the specific microbiota. So how does it, so an example, one example of maintaining would be, let's say uh, the microbiome of a certain creature has 10 strains of exactly. microbes. In, yeah. And strain number 10 is there always in very low numbers. Yes. If, if strain number 10 got to high numbers, that yes. would be like a dysbiosis. Absolutely. So you're saying that the immune system of that creature is sophisticated enough to say, all right, we want number 10 in there, for instance, but they need to be kept to this level and in check. And if, if that's the case, what is the mechanism by which it would accomplish that? Yes. So it's precisely as you say, um, the microbiome is a complex composition of some colonizers which are more abundant than others. And the question is, how is that regulated? And we think, and we have proven that functionally by trans, transformation, transgenic experiments, that the host has dozens, hundreds of antimicrobial peptides which function very specifically. And some of them target one microbiome group and others target another one. So, and by this cocktail of antimicrobial peptides, uh, the host is able to maintain the specific microbiome. We proved that by knocking out, doing transgenic animals and knocking out some of these immune molecules and then exposing this host uh, to an armada of different microbes. And we could find that the normal specific microbiome is not um, established in these knockdown animals. Conclusion, but because we knocked down a specific family of antimicrobial peptides, that these peptides contribute to the maintenance of this specific microbiome. Got it? Yeah, I've got it. What, what do you think is informing the host, as you call it, of which antimicrobial peptides to create and in what abundance? Do you think that there's communication between that's, the that's constituent a, microbiome? Because there would yeah. have to be a memory of this mm -hmm. that goes transgenerate Transgenerationally, I can't even say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember. Yeah, excellent point. Um, and uh, it's not uh, not precisely understood actually. How does the microbiome inform the host? Uh, so we think these are uh, microbial patterns, so small molecules from the microbes, and they, they get received by receptors, toll-like receptors, and the toll-like receptor initiates a cascade and downstream of this cascade are these antimicrobial peptides. So then, then you are back to your effector molecule, which then may again um, influence the composition of the microbiome. But how this precisely really works is really not yet known as many other things in this complex microorganism. There is a good reason why um, we got funded with a big center to understand precisely this type, this type of, um, of questions. But uh, let me. Yeah I, would, um, yeah, I would think there is a. The host, I'm sure, has a sense of self and other, you know, yeah. meaning its own somatic cells and then the microbiome cells. But what about the microbiome itself? Do you think that the constituent species form a, an idea of self and other? And that's like a collective self amongst many strains, you know? Okay, well, that's getting nearly a philosophical issue, but it's super interesting. We think, or I think, that the microbiome is indeed a, com a complex community. which has diff many different members, but it has a way of communication. They do quorum sensing, they do quorum quenching, uh, they talk to each other, 
and they function only as a group. We have found out before, that was another surprising finding um, that um, any function, one of the functions, for example, pathogen protection, the germ-free animal which we can produce and maintain for a long time is highly susceptible to, to, fungi, uh, to fungi infection. Now you bring back microbes and then the animal is protected again. But it's not sufficient because we can we have all the microbes in culture, it's not sufficient to bring one or even the dominant member of the microbiome back. And what we then say is you mono-associate the germ-free host with this type of microbe, that uh, anti-fungi defense potential is not developed until the full microbiota is back. That means you can then give back all of the microbes that what we call them conventionalized animals and then protection is back. That is a very important, uh, a very important finding, which is true for, we think, for all other organisms as well. It's also for, uh, for industrial reasons important because it's not enough to have one so-called probiotic strains or species somewhere in culture and then try to atomize this creature and find an active molecule. This bacteria will only function in the in vivo manner when it is back in its in its community so you have to somehow experimentally now make a system where the microbes have their complex highly diverse community plus they are living on the host and interact with the host and only in that situation they fully do what they normally do and, for example, uh, produce um, antifungal molecules protecting, protecting the host. That's the complexity of the microbial community and how that complex community precisely communicates with the host is really um, not understood in full details. Do you have any idea on if a foreign microbe, virus, fungus, whatever it is, uh, attempts to invade you know, the holobiont Yes. Where is the judging? Where is the decision making? Yeah. Another. Uh, another at what level is it made? Yeah. Another interesting and important question, and brings in a buzzword, and that is called colonization resistance. We think that the healthy microbiome, also, we really do not know what that is, but the normal, stable microbiome forms a community, and under undisturbed situation, it makes it very hard for any intruder to settle there. There can be many mechanisms and maybe several work at the same time which are responsible for that colonization resistance. That can be just physical exclusion, so there is no space where any other guy can settle, or there can be active um, active defense, so this, the good guys produce something which then may uh, hinder the intruding bacterium uh, to to stable to stable to to colonize the tissue there. Um, fact is that if we disturb the microbiome, then all of a sudden the tissue can get colonized by even pathogenic uh, bacteria, and then causes causes trouble. There is a beautiful work uh, in mouse by Barbara Rehmann. Um, which shows that this function of the healthy microbiome is probably um, very important and is one of the features which gets lost, A, 
in laboratory animals, even if they're called wild type, and also then most likely in in our in human, even in human populations, which which face Western lifestyle, and she showed that uh, beautifully by taking real wild type mice catch somewhere in barns in the East Coast, and checked the potential to prevent um, tumor forming bacteria to to settle the gut, and sure enough, the true wild type microbiome has a very strong protective. Um, um, effect in contrast to the microbiome which you use normally from mice which are your control mice and are the so-called wild-type mice. Speaking to a powerful function of a diverse, healthy, wild microbiome in preventing intruders from um, from colonizing the tissue. When you... Um... <clears throat> When we talk about the human microbiome, it always seems to center around the gut, even though yeah. there's, you yes. know, a vaginal one, uh, yes, you know, one in the mouth, one in the skin. I mean, there's yes. like hundreds of them. Yes. On, on the species that you've looked at, or other scientists have looked at, are there microbial microbial colonies everywhere throughout the whole organism? Yes. Different ones with each organ and with like everywhere in the body. Is there is there anywhere mm-hmm. in an organism that there are no microbes, no potential yeah. microbial fractions? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, we think that literally every epithelium, um, ectodermal, endodermal, depending on the bow plan on the anatomy of the animal, is colonized by by microbes. The model system I'm working is nothing but a tube, and that tube is only two layered, and the microbes are sitting outside in a mucosa layer, and we think that during evolution. This was then an, an, an outside inside event. So from outside, I got, it got then uh, um, into an into our gut like structure, and that's why the, the mucosa in our case is then lining the the gut tissue. But uh, coming back to more complex animals, uh, mammals or humans, it's absolutely true that you talked about the skin, the oral cavity, uh, the gut. Uh, the lung, the bladder, there is, and uh, so with more sophisticated technologies, um, um, colleagues find a stable microbiome in all of these organs. There are very few organs, if any, which are free of microbes. And uh, comes to the critical and hotly debated um, issue of the uterus. Uh, we still think that the the newborn baby um, is the baby is born sterile, and then it gets its first micro, microbes from the vagina of the mother. That's why cesarean section babies have trouble, um, so at least statistically in terms of medical performance. Um, and uh, so that seems uh, that seems an organ which is uh, free of microbes, but the rest of the body um, is colonized by a complex usually organ and epithelia-specific microbiome. Interestingly enough, um, they somehow also talk to each other and the skin microbiome and the oral cavity microbiome and the gut microbiome are in exchange. We do not understand that at all, but if we remove the gut microbiome by strong antibiotic um, treatment or others, we find that from a completely different habitat, the oral microbes somehow are able to invade the gut and then make somehow 
a new microbiome then colonizing the gut, but origin, originally now from the from the oral cavity. So we are really colonized by an invisible uh, armada of, of microbes, and they are of essential importance for our health. Health is multi-organismic, and we know that from germ-free animals, uh, germ-free mice and germ-free um, other animals, flies and worms and hydra. And of course, the effects, if you take away the microbes, are not that the animals are now completely different in their anatomy or morphology, but the effects are subtle, but very important and not, so the animals don't function normally. An evolutionary biologist would say, without microbes, you lose tremendous amount of your fitness. And there is a good reason in nature, there is no germ-free animal in nature. They all are colonized uh, and the microbes contribute to the fitness. The Actually, most there's, a, there's a good question. So how far down um, in terms of complexity of organisms do we see a holobiome? or a, a meta-organism, do we see it with even, you know, bacteria themselves? Do they have constituent bacteria or viruses? Or yes. at what point does this stop? Yes. Excellent question, um, um, Richard. And uh, we think that literally there is no organism, including single cells, uh, protists, uh, which are in some, maybe not in all cases, associated with, with microbes. If you think of the origin of the very first cell, uh, it happened that as the proto, the, the, the ur cell engulfed the bacterium and this bacterium then became a mitochondrium or it became, if it's getting a plant cell, became a, a chloroplast. And so even the, 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 the getting together of the goodies of a eukaryotic cell is of symbiotic origin and is actually by engulfing other bacteria. So it goes down very much to the to the to the end of the, the evolutionary tree. And uh, there are colleagues who are studying that. And the extreme form of this being together with microbes is of course then you be, the microbe becomes an organelle. But in most cases, the microbes are still a living community and uh, very active and very communicative to each other. Um, and just living on then extracellular or in then intracellular of a given host tissue. Yeah, there's so many questions. You know, like I was thinking too, so let's say we have two microbial colonies inside of a creature. What defines the border between them? You know, what's happening at the interface, let's say, of two microbial colonies? There must yes. be a tremendous amount of information exchange to say, Hey, you stay over there. I stay over here, and yes. we interact, and we talk, and maybe we trade resources. And yeah. it's pretty odd. You know? Yes. See, these are all fantastic and intriguing questions, and uh, but we still in this now emerging uh, new and uh, kind of really hype in the field, host microbe field, are in our early days, and in many. Uh, we in, in only in few cases we really understand functionally what's going on. You're completely right that um, we actually talk about that quite often. That the term boundary is getting a difficult term now because where does a human begin or end, and where does the microbiome start? Um, I have a paper, a perspective paper with a philosopher and a developmental biologist on the nature of self in the era of the microbiome, because uh, 
previously self, what is of course something which is uh, highly has to be protected and the traditional idea was that the immune system protects the self but now we know that the microbes are a major part of your immune system because if you remove them you get colonized pathogens so but microbes are non-self so non-selves protect yourself so the immune system is not good to not good uh, to to um, as a, as a hallmark of of self on in, in, in humans, uh, we also we, we we list two other examples. One is the brain. If you think what is you, you may think it's your brain, but uh, we know. And I would like to you know, to spend there a minute uh, just after I finish that sentence. Uh, we know that microbes interact with the neurosystem. We call that the gut microbiome brain axis. And uh, decision-making and behavior, even in simple animals, which only have reflexes, is affected by the microbes. So the brain is also questionable in terms of self. Then uh, leads as last pillar of definition of self, the genome. But uh, we have shown several years ago that about 37% of the human genome is uh, microbial or can be directly traced back to the microbes. So the genome is actually a very, a very mosaic chimeric entity and it just engulfed and it got a lateral gene transfer and transposons and it got then pieces and bits uh, from the from bacteria genomes. And so your genome reflects your history with the colonizing microbes. So that, um, Endogenous mm-hmm. retroviruses comprise, I think, like seven percent of our genome. But you're saying there's also a um, a bacterial component that comprises another yeah, twenty yeah, sure. percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you, I mean, you you can ask now your biostatistic uh, biostatistic uh, tools, and uh, then they this, these are able to find then not viral but bacteria. Uh, signatures in your genome, and then um, sure enough, you will find many of them. And so, this is a, a PNAS paper, first authored by Margaret McFall and PNAS uh, 2013, where we have a figure which shows that the genome, uh, the human genome, has 37% of bacterial uh, bacterial traces. So all of these are exciting, uh, but as I say, uh, still early findings. We are far from understanding a given holobiont in all its complexity. But the most exciting development is really that we found, we and many others found, that neurons talk to microbes and microbes talk to neurons. And that if you disturb that communication between the neurosystem and the microbiota, then you end up with behavior problems, uh, with dysregularities, even spontaneous reactions like motility of the gut in a germ-free animal doesn't function normally. There is dysmotility, which, by the way, is one of these diseases which also is increasing tremendously. And you can rescue that by giving back the normal set of microbes Again, not a single one, but the complex mixture. If you give it back, then this motility problem um, is uh, nearly completely uh, completely solved. Um, 
we and others try desperately, of course, to find microbial products which are responsible for that. We are not yet there. Uh, we have to learn another language which we were not trained in. We thought we understand transcripts and genomes and peptides, but now we have to learn on small molecules. So you have to collaborate with uh, MASPEC um, facilities uh, which allow you then to identify small metabolic products from microbes, which probably are the language, the communicator between the microbiota and, and your and your nurse cells. So well, what if um, I've learned about extracellular vesicles or exosomes? Yeah. Know that our somatic mm -hmm. cells produce them. I wonder mm -hmm. if bacterial cells have their own version of exosomes. I'm sure they do that. Maybe that's the vehicle by which they communicate with our cells. And maybe they're able to interpret our cells' exosomes for Mm -hmm. uh, so this is another intensively investigated area right now, exosomes, uh, which carry all kind of different content. And uh, so bacteria also have uh, have them. And so there may be a communication by fusing of these of these exosomes that that also may be that also may be may be the case. In essence, coming back to the beginning and my humble. My humble vision that I want, I use a simple organism to understand how is multicellular life um, organized and how is health maintained. Um, it turns out um, that we are far from really understanding that even in simple tissue, because it got so much more complicated, because there is an invisible component, which we now with modern technology, including visual, visualization techniques, can see. And... Uh, so the, the future must bring now a functional understanding of the interactions within such a holobiont or meta-organism. Maybe with the prospect that when we understand how they communicate with each other, that we may be able to manipulate that microbiome and that then would bring this microbiota field into the probiotic uh, classic history, probiotic um, people working with probiotics or even giving them don't know what they are doing. We have no idea uh, how that functions, but I could see that in 5, 10, 15 years, uh, when we really understand how that goes, that that may be then a way of manipulating the microbiome. And by manipulating the microbiome, also manipulating our physiology and maybe restoring health in a time which makes it so difficult for holobionts to maintain this diverse ecosystem. What, um, what experiments, feasible or not feasible, do you think need to be done to elucidate some of the biggest questions that you have? So I think we are very good in genomic analysis and um, so metagenomic analysis. The, the uh, challenge of the of the day is metabolomics, so going to the metabolites and trying to understand, um, again, this complex cocktails, um, how, how are they produced at a given time during a given developmental window, um, and how do they then interact with host cells? Not clear at all. And the other challenge and not yet a solved question is, which is very trivial, and people think we know that for a long time, but we do not know the spatial three-dimensional 
network and organization of these microbes in a given habitat. How do they really live together in the gut, on the skin, in the oral cavity, in a given model organism or model animal? It's completely unknown. Think about the gut, all of a mammal. All what we know about the gut is actually what we're doing, if you're honest, we sequence a little bit of poop. Uh, that means we do all the conclusions, what we have, that this person or that organism has this and this type of microbiome composition based on what comes out at the end after the, from, the, from the anus. However, in humans, our gut is about seven meters long, has very different habitats, and microbes live along the whole gut in more or less dense communities. We have no understanding how they really um, are organized. There is also a temporal uh, uh, temporal factor involved. Uh, so with time, the microbial organization seems to change. People, there's a, a brilliant, uh, brilliant researcher at the Weizmann, Iran Elinaf. He has published last year two papers in Cell addressing that question. But the technique is awful because the technique was he used uh, probands human probands and did biopsies and then um, along this gut system and then took out microbes and microbial products and then got an idea um, who sits at what position, etc., etc. So in terms of the other technologies we have, that really is Stone Age uh, tools. So what we have to develop is visualization methods um, to really get an understanding of the three-dimensional, the spatial organization of a holobiont. And uh, we are far from that. To give you an example, um, we know there's beautiful, uh, beautiful findings uh, from the tooth plug. Our teeth are covered, uh, uh, densely covered with the microbiome. And an, an American group has um, wonderful uh, visualized the microbes on a given, in, in these plaques. And they use different fluoroprobes to distinguish the different microbial partners in this plaque. And the, the pictures are, are spectacular because what you see is a community of microbes, but if you look, which are from different members, but if you look more closely, then you find that, wow, some of them are living in downtown in this plug and always downtown. Others are living only in the suburbs. And there are some microbes which are using somehow, they're, they're in between. And nobody understands what really organizes this type of uh, the spatial organization of this given microbial community. Uh, this I consider one of the major questions which we have to solve in, in the forthcoming future. And uh, brings me to another challenge, but some groups are already doing that. It's not enough that a given discipline is now engaging with high tech on that type of question. We have to combine forces. We are working inter or even transdisciplinary. And uh, in terms of the spatial organization, um, we personally started to communicate with urban planners because how a city and streets and downtown is organized, uh, there are certain rules, there is language, there is um, uh, technology involved, how to understand that. And uh, we, we think we can learn from them to understand this simple but fundamental problem, how is the microbiome, the, the biofilm on your tools really organized? We have no clue yet, but we have beautiful pictures which tell you that yes, there is 
has a very high degree of organization involved. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of maybe be a little woo-woo, but I, I actually see humanity recapitulating a lot of what uh, biology has done. Like yes. You see tiny animals with gears, and you see, like, at the microscopic level, a lot of things that people have supposedly independently invented. And, you know, you were talking about urban planners, and our cities literally yes. probably have a lot of the exact same interaction that microbial yes. communities do. So. Yes. Yes. In a weird way, it's weird. I wonder if we're being informed by our microbial constituent at all levels, levels we don't even understand that yeah. affects our thinking. And, and I wonder if we're all drawing on this, on this, on a reserve of knowledge that I guess is maybe invisible to us, but it's there in the biology itself. Yes. I mean, um, getting a bit, little back from from uh, and, and and but to reality uh, but which is also still very scary um there's absolutely plausible and reproducible experiments by colleagues in the field who transplant anxiety and you have heard about that that you have there's mouse there's mice which you can measure if they are anxious or not by very simple experiments uh, so the mouse runs out of of the cage, out of a black box in the cage, uh, and is then in the open space, or is mostly in the black in the in the box, and then computers and cameras can measure that, so you can quantify that. So then you identify there is a mouse which is mostly in the black box and never outside in the cage. Then you take this mouse, take the microbiome from that mouse, transplant that microbiome in a germ-free mouse, and the germ-free mouse will behave as the donor. So this is a complex behavior anxiety, um, and uh, that seems to have, maybe not all, but at least a very strong impact from the gut microbiome. And if that's the case, then you can, of course, speculate now and say, my goodness, so now uh, when I do a certain decision, I now go in the supermarket and take that or that, or I do this or that, uh, how much of that is influenced by the microbes? Interesting questions, far from being now um, at the moment uh, experimentally supported, but fascinating. And again, we have to go back in biology and medicine to a holistic understanding of organisms. Previous uh, people, my grandfather was a doctor, a countryside doctor. He looked at patients without any big technology. Uh, we have lost that. We have now all the technology. We look deep, deep, deep into tissue and into cells. We understand the molecular architecture of the cell completely. There's programs on that, etc. But then if you go back from this tunnel view and see the whole organism, we don't understand it because the organism is getting diseases which we have no clue. My colleagues call them complex diseases, non-communicable diseases. So we need... Uh, holistic understanding, and that's also true in biology. And only then we get a sound understanding of evolution, development, and also health and aging. Well, very good. Um, so, um, you know, we've thrown around a lot of concepts, tons and tons yes. of concepts, very unusual yes. things. Yes. Um, perhaps to you and me, maybe because we've been thinking about these things, um, they're not a big deal, but to the listener, they may be like mind-blowing or revolutionary or very different where can they go to learn more and to take the first step on uh, learning about what, you know, metaorganisms and holobionts are and, you know, maybe read some of your papers and delve into this area? 
Yeah, I mean, when people listen to this type of wonderful education programs, what you are organizing, that's, of course, one thing. But has to be careful um, because, as I said, there is a lot of hype in the field and many people jump now on the train because they think they can raise interest in their things when they now use the word microbiome. So, But there are books around, um, text, small books around um, at the young uh, I am multitudes just comes to my mind. Um, mm, I, th- I, that. I strongly would recommend to read that a very, uh, uh, whatever, a 200 pages textbook. And Ed Young, Ed Young has, uh, has, um, has interviewed many people in the field and careful, did careful research on what he was writing about. So there's some, some books um, around. Uh, there's of course, uh, hundreds of books on the microbiome, um, and some of them are better than the others, so I don't I hesitate to give recommendations. Um, but um, yeah, people can find information about that, and but they also should be should be aware that. And I repeat myself now for the third time: we are in the early days. We have not yet really. Uh, we are uh, fascinated, but we are by this by this uh, complexity. But we are not yet in a functional understanding. That is also true for industry and uh, for using that as, as probiotics. Um, industry wants to have products uh, very quickly, um, but uh, for getting there, we need a functional understanding of what's really going on. And I give you a last example, um, what one should not do, and that is that you take a kind of a bacterium of your joys, which you think is important. For example, lactobacilli are always important and they are always, uh, many of the probiotics are lactobacilli. So then companies, and I'll give you a real real case, but no names, companies now think, okay, then let's now make, take the lactobacillus and then design and invest in a pipeline, an analytical pipeline, which is uh, maybe millions of dollars, and then, then it fulfills all the safety criteria, blah, blah, blah. At the very end, uh, then you, you, you dissect this little um, lactobacillus bacteria into their components, and then you, uh, this is followed by bioassays, cell cultures, proliferation assays, whatever. And then you have now a probiotic where you know what you're doing. That all is good and fine, but the starting point is already wrong because uh, when you listen to me, I told you that no bacteria works alone. And these lactobacilli in their fermenter, they do something, but they certainly do not do that, what they would do in their normal community, in the gut or wherever they are sitting. So the desire of developing quick and maybe cheap products uh, in this new area of the microbiome uh, is faced with the fact uh, that first basic research must be done to understand what's going on. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, very good. Well, Thomas, it's been a great call. I appreciate you being here. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Thanks. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, 
there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.